It's Friday. Welcome to On The Line. I'm Rachel. And I'm Hussein. On The Line is a show to highlight a real people's history and struggle-oriented perspective of what's happening on the ground in workplaces and sectors across the U.S. Whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you'll always find us on the line. Today we'll be talking about the new ambitious plans from the UAW or the United Auto Workers to take on organizing all the major non-union auto companies in the United States, coming off of the historic 45-day strike and contract victory at the Big Three last month. This could mark the beginning of a historic union upsurge as the union targets not just one company but the entire auto industry as a whole. We'll be joined today by Roger Kieran, a labor historian and professor at State University of New York, who has written extensively on the history of the UAW and its formation. He'll help us understand what led to the most significant turning points and upsurges in the labor movement in the past and the history of how the UAW was formed to understand our moment today. We'll also be getting into some of the politics of sports labor and why, yes, even sports players need a union and deserve to be paid and and treated with dignity and respect on the job. The NBA was the first to unionize in 1954, followed by the NFL, the NHL, and then the MLB. These campaigns faced harsh opposition from team owners to prevent players from forming unions. Even in the multi-billion dollar sports industry, we have to ask ourselves, why? Today, Rachel and I will start to get into that. But first, I'll pass it over to Rachel for this week in labor history. On the line, we look to history for education, motivation, and inspiration for the fights ahead. And I really just love a fun fact. Now, this first one is especially relevant for our discussion today. On January 14th in 1964, the National Basketball Players Association, the Union of NBA Players, went on strike in protest of the All-Star Game. They were demanding union recognition, pensions, athletic trainers on every team, and reduced game scheduling from the NBA. They held up the locker room for 22 minutes. Mm. That's a long time. Amidst threats that they would all be blacklisted from the league and punished until the league commissioner came in and what did he do? Cave to their demands. Cave to their demands. (laughs) Uh, We love to see it. So a lot happened on January 15th now in history. And to start it off, I have to start local in Boston because this is actually crazy. And this is a fact I did not know. In 1919, on January 15th, uh, what was known as the Boston Molasses Disaster, Mm. the Great Molasses Flood, and also known as the Great Boston Molasses Tragedy, (laughs) took place. I'm sorry. It's not funny. It's not funny. Oh, shit. All right. A large molasses storage tank in Boston's North End burst and sent a 40-foot wave of molasses through the streets of Boston at about 35 miles per hour. How'd they clock that? That's crazy. Unfortunately, 17 workers were killed in this tragedy, and I think really just speaks to how important up-to-date infrastructure and safe working conditions are. But that's a fun fact. Well, I guess not super fun. Not so fun fun facts. This week in labor history from Boston. 
Also on January 15th in 1929, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born. And this year we'll be celebrating MLK Day on his actual birthday, which is cool. As we hopefully all know, MLK was a huge influence on the labor movement, on the anti-war movement, and of course the fight for civil rights in the U.S., and was killed specifically while supporting striking sanitation workers in Memphis. I actually went to hit the, the site where mm. he was killed earlier uh, this year. Very powerful. But if you heard in the last episode, you know MLK was about his business. He is famously quoted as saying, we're coming to get our check. Lastly, in 1946, again on January 15th, and this one is for you, Hussein, some 174,000 members of the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers Union, or UE, went on strike against General Electric and Westinghouse after the power companies with obviously record-setting profits, because they're always making record-setting profits, they offer just a half cent per hour increase. After nine weeks on strike, the workers won a 18.5 cent raise, which I mean, to us, that sounds pitiful, but at the time was a pretty baller raise. That's all for this week in labor history. On the line, we will keep looking to the past to fight for the future. Now let's get into it. As we, we've all been following, the, the UAW in the last few weeks has launched a massive new organizing drive at the 13 non-union auto companies, mainly concentrated in the South. And we haven't really seen such an ambitious industry-wide organizing push uh, from the UAW um, like this since its remarkably successful founding decade in the 30s and 40s and, of course, their roots previously in the late 20s. Um, we're honored to have Roger Kieran on today to talk uh, talk to us about that history and to put the current organizing push in context. Roger is one of the most prominent and well-respected labor historians in the U.S., especially around the UAW, having taught at Cornell, Princeton, Rutgers, and the State University of New York. Roger was also an auto worker himself with the UAW at GM in Detroit and an anti-war leader during the Vietnam War and previously worked as the education director of UAW District 65 in New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Roger. Thanks for joining us. Good. Thank you for the invitation. We're uh, happy there's to... A lot to say. <laughs> there's a lot to say, a lot to learn from the history. And uh, uh, But even if we just scratch the surface today, it's, uh, it's a good start. No, 100 percent. Mm-hmm. I think we have to start making the contributions now that the the history of the UAW is being re- resurrected in a way in in the mainstream. And I think sort of to jump right into it, um, there's this guy, Jim Cramer, who <laughs> is the host of Mad Money. He talks about the stock market. In a way, he's like the voice of capital um, mm. in the An mainstream media. Voice. A very annoying voice, too, <laughs> for people who haven't heard him yet. But there's this clip of him talking about before September 14th, before the UAW launched their stand-up strike, talking about the potential for the strike. He thinks a strike is going to come. And then he he looks very, very concerned in his facial expression. And I, I actually think we can. Can we play the clip? Okay, let's can we we're going to actually play the clip for you, Roger. I think there's going to be a strike and I think it's going to be horrible. You're making that call September 14th. I think they're going to strike Uh, this. The uh, man, the guy who runs the UAW, 
I find him frightening. And this man, Sean, who is just talking about capitalism and the nature of capitalism and how it's really hurt workers. This is very Walter Ruther uh, language. It's a, uh, it, it's the kind of language that when we when we had in this country, uh, we'll take you down if you don't play ball. That's the language I'm hearing from UAW. Yep. And look, I mean, it's the kind of language where you just say, you know what, we should have built all our EVs in Mexico. It's that bad. I don't think people are paying enough attention. The man is, I'm not saying he's irrational. I'm saying he was elected sure. in order to make it so that there's a very short week to find benefit back. And, and then the notion that that we're fat cats. The, the shareholders are fat cats and have been overly rewarded. We haven't seen this. That's he's class warfare. And it's very shocking to hear class oh, well, warfare. I wow. <laughs> I think people know now the <clears throat> the annoying the, voice, the annoying voice <laughs> yeah. aspect Kramer. of it. Um, but the in another clip, he talks about how the UAW and Sean Fain's rhetoric, the newly elected president of the UAW, and the lead up to the auto strike, and then of course during the forty-five day strike of UAW auto workers, that it reminds him of the UAW of the nineteen thirties. Um, Roger, you are. I've done extensive research, written extensively about the formation of the UAW, the role of the left, and specifically the role of communists in the formation of the UAW. Not a lot of people know about what the UAW of the 1930s actually was. Why don't you start us off with a little bit about that history? Okay. Let, let me say that, of course, if you strip the superciliousness and the uh, anxiety from what Kramer's saying, He's actually uh, onto something here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the UAW and the UAW leadership today uh, probably resembles the leadership of the UAW in 1937 more than any leadership uh, of the UAW or the labor movement in general since 1947. So mm. I think maybe, you know, he's onto something. Even a stopped clock is right twice a day. You know? so <laughs> I think he was. He was on to something. Um, so your question is, uh, so what was the UAW like in the, in the 1930s? Huh? Uh, let, let me, uh, if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll step back and yeah. uh, I'll make three, uh, three points about what I think the, the relevance of the UAW struggles of the 1930s have for today. And then we can get into the detail. I think there are many, many lessons from the 1930s, big ones and little ones. But I would say that the, the three, uh, just to, to summarize, again, we can get into it more deeply. The three takeaways, I'd say, from the UAW struggles of the 1930s with relevance to, the, to today is, uh, first of all, that uh, history can change very quickly mm -hmm. and very surprisingly and very unexpectedly. And uh, I think that very few people in 1936 would have expected the explosion of labor militancy that occurred in 1937 and continued really until 1947. Uh, that this was uh, this was in many ways very uh, surprising, um, and of course that there are many many differences between the 1930s and today, uh, 
internationally, the the Soviet Union didn't uh, doesn't exist today as it did then. The Communist Party today is only a shadow of what it was in the in the 1930s. Uh, the um, majority of uh, of uh, the, I mean, the auto industry has changed. It was dominated by the big three in those days. Uh, today, uh, most autos made in this country are not made by the big three. And of course, the UAW itself, as a except as a very small union, didn't exist in 1936 uh, as it does today. But so there are vast differences. But I think it's important to remember that there are vast or important similarities also that I mean, this is still capitalism. <laughs> the auto industry is still capitalist. That is, it's based on exploitation. That is not paying the workers <laughs> the the value that they make. Uh, and uh, then as now, trade unions are dominated by business uh, unionists who have not devoted much attention to organizing and striking uh, in the past 40 or 50 years. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, then is now there's a growing segment of the workforce, I think, that is more radical, more impatient, more unhappy with what things are going and want to see things change in a, in a different direction. So uh, uh, and can things change as quickly as they did in 1937? I think so. I mean, really, if you look, 1937, the UAW had just become an international union. It had less than 20,000 members in a industry of nearly 500,000 workers. And what happens in the next four years, it organizes the largest corporation in the United States, General Motors. And then very soon after that, Chrysler and Ford. It goes from having about less than 20,000 members in 1936 to having over 150,000 workers by 1941 and over a million workers by 1947. Wow. So could this happen again? Yeah, this could happen again. It could happen because I think under capitalism, there's always a certain volatility. Mm-hmm. When you have people who are uh, living paycheck to paycheck, which in spite of the U.S. prosperity and part of the unions, most American workers live paycheck to paycheck. They don't have enough in the bank to last them uh, two missing paychecks. Inequality in this country is worse than it's ever been in the whole history. And so in those situations, there's a certain volatility that can break to the surface at any time, it seems to me, given the right concatenation of, of, of circumstances. Um the second lesson I would uh, take from this struggle of the 1930s, and again, all of this we could go into in more detail, is that the importance of having a leadership that believes in class struggle, of what I would call class struggle unionism. And that's the kind of leadership that came to lead the UAW in 1936, even though they had only 20,000 members or less, they had about 126 members of Flint, which was the headquarters of General Motors, they immediately launched an organizing drive in Flint, set their key organizer, Windham Mortimer, to Flint to organize for a strike. Uh, so this was a, uh, a class struggle orientation to trade unionism, which not only existed in the UAW, but existed in other CIO unions at this time. And then 
was embodied also, uh, you have, would have to say, by communists in the UAW. And then that sector of the leadership was virtually wiped out in 1947 with the Cold War and with the expulsion of the so-called communist unions from the CIO. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, what, uh, again, just to go back to this idea of, of class struggle unionism, you had the American Federation of Labor, which had tried to organize uh, the UAW, kind of, you know, in the, in the previous years, but they didn't believe in an industrial union, that all the workers should be in the same union. They didn't believe in strikes, absolutely opposed strikes. They thought the auto workers should be in craft unions and should rely on the government to make gains. This got them nowhere from about 1927 to, you know, 1936. And eventually, uh, the unions got tired of that kind of uh, preaching, and they turned to those who were talking, giving a more militant uh, message that we need industrial unions and we have to strike if we're going to get improvements. Um, the third lesson I think that's important to take, a takeaway from this UAW struggles of the 1930s, is the important effects and influence that a small minority can have, particularly when they're united, when they're dedicated, when they're disciplined, and they have an ideology and policies that make sense to the mass majority of workers. Mm. And that's really what the communists represented in the UAW in 1936. In 1936, you had an industry with about 400,000 people. The communists had 600 people <laughs> in, in all. Uh, the most they ever had in auto was about a thousand and a hundred people in 1941 or so. Yet they wielded a tremendous influence. First of all, they had a lot of allies, but secondly, they had a message that resonated with people. And uh, um, so, I think those are the three major takeaways that I would I would start with: that things can change very rapidly in a class society and in an industry like auto where uh, wages and conditions have deteriorated the last 40 years, as Sean Fain points out. And uh, secondly, when you have a militant trade union leadership that believes in class struggle, and third, when you have a, a minority that can connect with the majority of workers in terms of well, what their interests are. Yeah, thank you for that, Roger. I think you're making some really excellent points, and I'm super glad to have a historian on the show because, you know, on the line, we really like to look to history in order to inform our approach um, and our analysis of the current moment and also our approach for the future. Um, <clears throat> and I see what the points that you're making is, is very parallel to what we're seeing today. Um, you know, the, the poor economic conditions, the depression was happening um, at the time. Uh, what are some of, I want to go a little bit deeper into some of these points that you raised already. What were some of the reasons that this upsurge in organizing with the UAW were possible and also successful? Like what, what was happening on the ground um, that allowed for this? Um, well, again, it's a good question. I think there are some things that are, are are clearly not easily duplicated in today's situation that explain what happened in the 1930s. Yes. Like you say, the Depression. 
I don't think anything shakes up people's uh, consciousness more than uh, unemployment, let's mm -hmm. say, losing your paycheck, losing your home. Uh, and that was the situation in auto, where you had over a third of the auto workers uh, unemployed. Those that weren't unemployed had faced wage cuts, et cetera. That, that makes people think uh, differently, you know, and it certainly makes them think differently about capitalism, makes them think differently about socialism, makes mm -hmm. them think differently about unions. So you had that, of course, laying in the uh, lying in the background. Then you had uh, Roosevelt and the New Deal, which is the, the most progressive uh, politics that we've ever had in this country <laughs> before or since, I might say. And uh, uh which was uh, recognizing that uh, how exploited and oppressed workers were and giving them the legal right to, to organize, this made for, for a different atmosphere, of course. Um, but again, uh, the, the, uh, the key thing, I think, is that, I mean, workers had been showing discontent, uh, well, really, Throughout the 1920s, you look at the history of, uh, as you can see in my book, in the, in the 1920s, workers were constantly going on spontaneous strikes. They're called wildcat strikes. They threw down their tools and go out be, because uh, the employer had suddenly cut their wages by 10 percent. In uh, 1934, without unions, there were three general strikes that, that, that occurred. Uh, uh, there was one in uh, 1933 in Briggs involving thousands, tens of thousands of workers. In 1934 in Autolite in Toledo, again, thousands of workers. So that discontent was, was there. Uh, but what you have uh, in the uh, 1934, 35, 36 is the AFL trying to contain this discontent and say, no, 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 let's rely on the government, we'll rely on the National Labor Board, uh, we'll get a union this way, and uh, no need to strike, strikes are outdated. Uh, and uh, and that on the other hand, you have uh, the communists, and there, there were others as well, there were some socialists, left-wing socialists. There were even some old uh, wobblies who were saying, no, that's not going to work in this industry. We've got to organize industrial unions, include everybody, the immigrants, blacks and whites together, women, and uh, and then we have to take on these uh, employers, take on these big auto companies, and the only thing they're going to re respect is us withholding our labor. We've got a strike. And uh, that made sense to people. And uh, so I think that was the, the you have the background of the Depression and the New Deal, and then you have this uh, element of some militant uh, trade unionists uh, showing the way. I think those were the, the key elements that made this combustion uh, possible. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Thank you for sharing that. And I think what, what you're saying and what it sounds like to me is that the fight really went beyond just the workplace. You know, it was it was connected to the broader social conditions, economic conditions, political conditions that people were experiencing. And I think today that's so important where we're seeing, you know, the economy just really being a very difficult situation for any average person to you like make it through. Um, we're seeing mm. movements on the rise, left and right. 
um, but mainly on the side of justice, you know, is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. on the left. Um, mm-hmm. And people really, I mean, with the UAW fight, it's it's a fight that's connected not just to, you know, workers in the plants, but also the community at large. Um, and so in thinking about some of the parallels between, you know, that reality in the 30s and 40s and also today, can we get your thoughts on on that? Uh, yeah, I would say like one thing, like it's often bantied uh, about, bandered about in the you know left wing circles that uh, the main weakness of the Communist Party and auto and labor was their their connection to the Soviet Union. How they defended the Soviet Union, their subservient to the Soviet Union, etc. Except, I mean, if you look at the reality on the ground in the 1930s in Detroit. Uh, with uh, unemployment uh, vast, uh, and uh, you look at the Soviet Union where there was no unemployment. You know, uh, to defend the Soviet Union in this situation made a certain sense, not only to left-wing workers but to workers in general. <laughs> there were there was a lot of favorable sentiment to the Soviet Union. There were workers who were aware of what was going on. Uh, that is, socialism made a certain amount of sense. Uh, I think the other thing, another thing is that uh, when all of these workers, thousands, tens of thousands, twenties of thousands of workers were laid off in auto in the early 1930s, they were just abandoned. I mean, there, there was not, nobody there for them. There was, the AFL didn't come to their aid. Uh, the government didn't come to their aid for a while until uh, the New Deal kicked in. Uh, who was there? It was the communists who organized unemployed councils and unemployment demonstrations, who went to uh, the mayor's office, who went to the city council, who demanded food, who demanded shelter, who demanded rents. Uh, so the communists had established certain credentials as defending people's interests even before uh, the union campaign kicked off in the 19, well, let's say in 1936. So, um, so I think this idea that uh, 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 that I think socialism had a certain appeal again to people in the middle of the depression, and the practical experience of uh, leftists also had a certain appeal. And again, this kind of came together uh, by 1936-37. There, there is a parallel around unemployment in the 21st century, which is COVID, right? Where Mm -hmm. so many millions of workers, I think 90% of the hospitality industry were laid off. Um, There wasn't much support really uh, from the US government. Um, And based on their negligence and policies towards the pandemic, over a million people died. And Mm. when you go through something like that, where death is right in your face and the you know the government isn't doing anything about it it does start to change people's ideas on what sort of society they live under what who what the priority is and of course on the other hand you have CEOs and and large corporations making record profits and i think that at the core um was um the the UAW slogan spoke to that that they gave concession after concession for so many years um the great recession they took major concessions during COVID-19, they took concessions, and now it was time to fight back. And at least in my experience, that's what resonated with so many workers that 
there's this desire to actually wage a serious campaign against these companies and CEOs that, you know, own everything, but do nothing, you know, make $30 million a year. But during bargaining, they're in their vacation home in, in Mexico. And suddenly you have a figure like Sean Fain, who is really just painting a picture of what the reality is for so many workers and broadening it beyond just their own experience, but tying it to how society functions that Mm -hmm. like, you know, Jim Cramer talks about class warfare. Really what Sean Fain was doing was identifying the, um, the fact that classes exist and and are in conflict with one another, the existence of, uh, class war and it's been so one-sided for so many years and it's time to actually make it a, a real fair battle and now 2023 as we also talked about this on the last episode there's nothing that gives workers more confidence than victories and they've seen we've all seen over the last year major victories of over 300,000 UPS workers over 100 something like 150,000 auto workers. Um, And so people feel like fighting back and winning is and and changing their situation, not just in uh, very small ways, but in dramatic ways is now is now a possibility. Yeah, it's it's extremely exciting. I mean, to hear a union leader, as you say, talk about class warfare. We've been at class warfare in this country for the past 40 years, and workers have been losing. To hear a union leader speak about the working class as a class, not working families, not, uh, you know, employees. Or middle class. class. Unions love to say middle class. (laughs) Yeah, middle class, right. To to hear a, a union leader say billionaires don't have a right to exist. Yeah, <laughs> to, or to say that solidarity is a good thing. That's as Sean Fain said uh, a, a couple of days ago, that it's not just uh, uh, strikes that are a good thing, which he said strikes are a good thing. Strikes are necessary, but solidarity strikes and and this you know putting this uh, these expiration dates on May Day two thousand twenty eight. So, uh, uh, so this is the kind of uh, language that you have not heard from labor leaders, you have to go back again to the period 1937 to 1947 to hear this kind of language spoke. Now, I don't know, Sean Fain. I don't know what the future is going to bring. Labor leaders sometimes are very militant for a while, and then they become not so militant. They become uh, bought off. Uh, This capitalism is a very powerful and wealthy uh, organization, as you know. And what happens to many labor leaders, Walter Ruther is a good example. He was part of the militant union tradition of 1937. He was working with the communists. But then for his own careerist ambitions, and because he had his pulse on the uh, where the country was going, he turned into an anti-communist and started preaching labor management cooperation. You know, we're all one big family. Let's grow the Mm. pie, we'll grow the pie. That's how workers will benefit. We'll work with the employer. Labor management uh, cooperation. 
In fact, uh, these labor management cooperation committees that were set up after 1947, including labor management uh, training, was exactly where the corruption <laughs> resulted from in the in the UAW. So, uh, but uh, that the capitalists, I mean, it's the old story. I mean, they've got money on their side and they've got power on their side. And uh, they can send uh, union leaders to jail like uh, Jimmy Hoffa, or they could have them assassinated like uh, Joseph Yablonsky of the mine workers. Uh, or they can invite them to golf outings, invite them to sit on government commissions. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they could wean them that way. So let's hope Sean Bain has the fortitude to continue on his path and that he is surrounded by people and by militant workers who encourage him in this path. But there's no guarantees. Yeah. Uh, remember, John Jen L. Lewis was the leader of the CIO in the 1930s mm -hmm. when all of this organizing took place. By 1941, he was supporting uh, Wendell Wilkie, the Republican. So uh, no guarantee that a, even a militant trade unionist will stay one. But uh, I think given the economic circumstances today and given where youth are at today, that over uh, 85 percent of uh, American youth say they support socialism, uh, I think uh, there's a good chance that uh, Sean Fain might uh, stick with his words. Yeah, I think just speaking to before we get into the and sort of conclude with the new organizing push at the non-union auto companies, one thing that the UAW inserted into popular consciousness at the very least among its members uh, in auto and higher education and beyond but also to a degree, the entire country, because these strike announcements that happened every week on Friday, and then, of course, they started to switch it up. And they, I think they put out a, a plant in Kentucky, like they just mm -hmm. announced it um, without a, a schedule. But every Friday, um, Sean Fain would make an announcement, would would agitate um, workers around uh, the issues, what we've been having to deal with, and also... Uh, draw in workers who weren't in the union by making it clear that this fight was an, a fight for the entire working class. Because if auto workers in the UAW win, it sets an industry standard. Uh, it gives workers in other non-union industries or in auto who are non-union the confidence to fight and to organize. Um, it weakens a common enemy, so to speak. But in those... Um, stand-up strike announcements, he talked often about the sit-down strike and how the sit-down strike of 1936 uh, inspired, and in 37, inspired the uh, stand-up strike um, strategy of 2023. So could you speak a little bit to these sort of, the, the innovation of the sit-down strike in the 30s and um and the stand-up strike now? Well, I, I was very encouraged to hear uh, uh, Fain speak about the, the stand-up strike and the strategy of the stand-up strike, precisely because it recalled the, the sit-down strike, uh, which, again, has been relatively forgotten by UAW leaders since 1947. Uh, I mean, the sit-down strike 
Where did it originate? Well, as far as I could tell, I mean, some IWW, you know, wobblies had used the sit-down strike earlier, even before World War One. But really, the prominence of the sit-down strike in the 1930s really came from France, uh, where communist trade unions who led the CGT in France engaged in this tactic. Uh, they still use it today in France, as a matter of fact, some, sometimes. But it seems to me pretty logical that that's where the, how this guy idea got imported into the UAW was this idea of uh, that came through the communist activists in the uh, UAW, and the idea was, of course, once you you seize a strike or seize a plant and sit down in it, that's not so easy to get production going. It's not just a matter of bringing in strike breakers through the picket lines. You know, you got workers who actually control the plants, and these workers believed in militant action. So when the government came in with an injunction, they said, no, we're not obeying the injunction. And we got lawyers who will fight the injunction. When they brought in the National Guard and the police and threatened to evict the strikers, like, come at us. We're armed. <laughs> We've armed ourselves with uh, with uh, uh, hinges and uh, with the rubber tubes from the uh, from the auto plant itself. Come, try to take us out. And they didn't do it. Uh, so uh, it was a whole tradition then of violating the law and uh, solidarity and showing a kind of militance. That's what the stand-up strike reminds itself. The other thing about the stand-up strike that uh, was militant is it kind of reminds you of uh, some of the things that went on in the uh, sit-down strike and the sense the element of surprise. It's like in warfare. I mean, there's nothing like the element of surprise. And that's what the stand-up strike did, too. The auto company didn't know who was going to be hit next, uh, how this was going to expand. It kept them off balance, kept them from planning. Kept, and uh, I thought that was a very clever uh, and uh, kind of modernization of some of the uh, sit-down tactics. I know workers really loved it. There were uh, in all the UAW Facebook groups. Um, and when we were in Kokomo, uh, people were making memes of Sean Fain playing Battleship with the companies. Um, uh, one, someone superimposed Sean Fain's face on a LeBron uh <laughs> LeBron announcement, like, I'm taking my talents to Miami. I'm taking the strike to <laughs> Detroit or Flint Assembly or what was the Toledo Assembly. Um, so people were really having fun with it. And, and the companies, like you said, were really on their toes um, or okay. on their feet in the sand, so to speak. But um, now looking forward, the, the stand-up strike, I think by all accounts, was a major victory for the labor move for the UAW for sure, in the over 146,000 auto workers, but for uh, the labor movement as a whole and introducing boldness and tactical innovations and now a major push to organize the non-union sector of the auto industry. Um, companies like Hyundai, Honda, Toyota, I can't list them all. The a lot of the EV companies, Rivian, Kia, Tesla, in Texas and in California, all these. I think it represents over 150,000 non-union workers um, across all these companies. And really, for the UAW, based on what they're saying, it's really where the fight lies because you can only fight 
a a union section of the industry so aggressively when they're also competing against firms who can pay less to produce more in their same industry. Um, so if you organize everyone, then you can take them all on um, that much that much harder. Um, obviously, there is uh, there's a certain challenge in new organizing in general. The I can't remember of it recent in the last 10 years, a campaign of this size, this magnitude being announced by a major international union. But it's also happening in a particular region of the country that Mm -hmm. has the lowest union density. I mean, South Carolina is somewhere where they're like major BMW and I think Mercedes plants. South Carolina has a union density of 1.7%, I think. Um, We we, What was that? 1.6. 1.6, yeah. And and on the last episode, we crunched the numbers. If, hypothetically, the Spartanburg, I hope they'll do it, and and I have confidence they will, but if the BMW plant in Spartanburg, South Carolina, um, organizes and joins the UAW, union density in South Carolina would increase by over 20%. Mm. Um, from 1.7 to whatever the new number is, which is kind of absurd. But there have been attempts historically to organize the South. As someone who's written and researched extensively on the topic of auto and, and, and the labor movement and organizing, I'm sure you have also researched the South. Tell us a little bit about those attempts, the challenges, and the significance of such a campaign, especially the region that the UAW is targeting? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been uh, obvious, for, you know, for a long time that the South is a drag on uh, the, the union movement as a whole. It's a drag on the economy. This is the, our legacy of uh, slavery, you know. This is the uh, the legacy of the Confederacy. We should not Forget this, that all these right to work states, all of these states uh, where uh, Mercedes and BMW and Toyota are located are former Confederate states. And uh, uh, and it's been a drag on the on the whole country remains a drag on the whole country. It's it's the uh, electoral base of uh, Trumpism. (laughs) So. And this was uh, obvious in the uh, in the 1940s that uh, that if the union movement, the CIO, was going to prosper, they had to take on the South. Thus, you had uh, Operation Dixie, uh, which was uh, supported by the leaders of the uh, CIO, Murphy, uh, Murray, and uh, uh, ha- ha- was pushed by the the left in the CIO. Of course, in 1947 came the the Cold War, uh, and people like uh, Ruther took over uh, the UAW and pushed out all of the the left, communists and non-communists. The militants were pushed aside. Uh, it was true in uh, Steel. It was true in other not all unions, not UE, but uh, many many unions. Those people who had the kind of class consciousness and the dedication to organize were pushed out. And uh, uh, so what we were left with, the CIO had the, some money, but they did not have the organizers. And Operation Dixie then uh, collapsed in the middle of the, of the Cold War. Uh, and of course, uh, this gave a new 
Cold War gave a new lease on life to uh, racism in the South, and that uh, militated against uh, organizing black and white workers. They gave uh, people like Strom Thurmond a uh, platform, etc. So, um, uh, it, it's it's clear that to me you need not only this uh, commitment to to give put money into organizing, which Sean Fain has done, uh, and to send organizers into the South. But uh, it also involves taking on the uh, ideology of uh, the South, taking on uh, racism, et cetera. And uh, remains to be seen whether this is going to be uh, part of this. I think very encouraging to see in the Chattanooga plant, for example, in mm-hmm. uh, the v, uh, Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, that it's not just a matter of pouring money in and of doing leafleting and uh, uh, publicity, but organizing at the ground level, uh, rank and file organizing committee. I think they have 187 members in this uh, organizing committee, and they're trying to get representatives on this organizing committee from every single department in the plant so that uh, they're prepared to deal with the onslaught that's sure to come. You know, uh, uh, Jay Gould, the capitalist in the 19th century said, uh, I can hire half of the working class to kill the other half. Well, it's the same mentality today, except mm-hmm. uh, today they're not quite as brutal. Now, instead of hiring half the working class to kill the other half, they hire anti-union consultants to deceive the other half. And uh, so, th- these uh, corporations, will, like v- uh, Volkswagen, will spend millions of dollars to bring in anti-labor consultants to lie, mislead, threaten, intimidate, uh, bribe. And uh, the uh, union has to be able to withstand this kind of an ideological and psychological assault. And it can only occur, it seems to me, by having a strong rank and file organizing committees at the uh, at the ground level, and looks to me, at least in Chattanooga, that uh, Sean Fain recognizes this, or the UAW recognizes this, and they're taking uh, precautionary steps uh, to uh, to deal with this onslaught, which is sure to come if it hasn't come already. Yeah, I really agree with you. And I appreciate you talking about the right to work laws being rooted in racism um, across Mm -hmm. the South. And, you know, I mean, they're not hiring one half of the working class to kill the other half, but they are hiring the anti-union firms or whatever. They're also using racism as a huge tool to pit people against each other, to divide workers and to keep people from understanding their common interests, which is dignity and re- i mean in the in the case of you know the labor movement right like dignity and respect on the job and in life in general um and so i think it's it's really exciting to see the south th- this this coming to fruition of the organizing of the south uh by uaw it's 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 super exciting uh but just to switch ge- oh sorry go ahead so yeah you go right back to, to 1947 the taft you see it, the two lines of attack on the labor movement one drive out the communists. Anybody who's a communist cannot hold an office in a labor union. They do, they go to prison. So 
the, the head of the Alice Chalmers local who led the most important strike in the country in 1947. When he denied he was a communist, he went to prison for five years. And then the other line of attack for Taft-Hartley was right-to-work laws. Mm-hmm. You can pass right-to-work laws, which will uh, limit union dues, encourage people to become non-members, and make it very difficult to organize. And today, about uh, what, 20, 21 uh, states, mainly in the South, that have these right-to-work laws. So that was the, uh, that was the attack. Uh, 1947, Taft-Hartley. Right. Speaking of making it difficult to organize, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Elon Musk. (laughs) Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, right? I don't even, I can't even tell you how much money he makes. Um, The CEO of Tesla, he has said himself that he doesn't agree with the idea of unions, of course, not very surprising. Um, And in the past, he's actually threatened that Tesla workers would lose stock options if they were to unionize. And, you know, I mean, we've seen it happen in in many ways, Tesla's union busing over the past couple of years, you know, ranging from firing workers um, who are leading organizing efforts to just rules prohibiting workers from talking about their pay. Some of these really get in there type of anti-union, union busting tactics. But Elon Musk, on the bright side, I will say, Elon Musk is one of those very figures, those corporate moguls, those just like really annoying (laughs) rich people that the UAW and and Sean Fain specifically are taking on, right? They're they're confronting headfirst. They're saying enough is enough. These people don't deserve to be making anywhere near the amount of money they're making when it's our members, the working class, who is actually making all of the profits for these people. What do you think are, what would you say are some of the connections here with, you know, UAW taking on these Elon Musk type folks, the organ, connecting that to the organizing in the South and Henry Ford and, you know, who was a very similar type of character as Elon Musk? Yeah, exactly. I think you you made the, the point exactly that uh, you look at uh, the UAW struggles in the 1930s. Who were they up against? They were up against Henry Ford and Alfred P. Sloan, two of the richest men in the world and two of the most reactionary men in the world. Uh, Henry Ford, uh, anti-Semitism was an inspiration to Adolf Hitler. Uh, Alfred Sloan worked uh, intimately with the uh, Hitler's war machine, uh, supplying it and building it up. These were terrible human beings. And Elon Musk is a terrible human being. And the first thing he did when, he, as you said, when he took over Twitter, was just lay off one third of the workers. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, who does this? I mean, he wasn't facing uh, an economic depression. No, no, this was the way he was going to increase his profits. Uh, so uh, his, his, it goes right. I mean, there, there a recent biography just came out of Elon Musk. He said, really, if you want to understand Elon Musk, you have to understand that he really wants to be a lord, like a feudal lord mm-hmm. from the Middle Ages. That's what he really aspires to. Well, uh, that may be, but uh, he certainly understands capitalism. And the way you increase profits are by reducing wages, keeping wages at a minimum, increasing the intensity of work, or increasing the hours of work. That's it. Putting in new machinery, new products. Now, that only lasts temporary, and then your competitors. The only way to do it is to go after your workers' wages and benefits, 
make them work harder, make them work longer hours. And that is the blueprint of Tesla, <laughs> uh, where workers work long hours under dangerous conditions. And uh, and he gets away with it because uh, he's so rich and he has such a good PR that nobody exposes uh, the number of injuries and uh uh, the overwork of uh, Tesla workers. But as I said, the, this is very similar this is to, to Ford and Sloan in the 1930s. And they were beaten in the 1930s. And Tesla and Musk will be beaten in the uh, 21st century. <laughs> I'm confident. Me too, Roger. Me too. <laughs> well, Roger, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I think that's a great point to conclude on that Elon Musk will be defeated. Um, no matter how bitter the fight, um, and I'm sure it will be very bitter because, like you said, <laughs> these uh, anti-union campaigns, they'll go to great lengths to prevent people from, you know, realizing uh, their power and and recognizing a very basic fact, which at the end of the day, you're just stronger together rather than alone. That's, that's what we always have to come back to. Um, but, Roger, thanks again for coming on. We... We re really want to stay in touch and, and revive and popularize this history more. And in our experience, there's a lot of genuine interest in uh, in that history and how, like Rachel mentioned, can inform uh, the the fights ahead. So we'll, we'll, I'm sure, stay in touch. Thank you again for all your contributions to the show and, and of course, historically to uncovering all this uh, rich history of the UAW and, and the labor movement writ large. Thanks again for this introduction. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think the work you're doing and on the line is uh, extremely valuable, and I wish you the best in these uh, efforts. Thank you, Thanks, Roger. Roger. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, I am super excited to get into this discussion on the politics of sports labor. I mean, honestly, I think both sides are missing each other. Sports media doesn't talk about players' rights in a serious way enough. And also, the labor movement doesn't, I mean, what I've seen, the labor movement does not really talk about the injustices that sports players, who are workers, right, um, face on the regular. Mm -hmm. Why? Probably because professional athletes are making millions of dollars, right? Like, that's a lot more than the average um, worker. I mean, I'm definitely not in that income bracket. Um, but the reality is that they're subject to some of the harshest workplace conditions and are being exploited tenfold compared to, you know, the total revenue of revenue of the industry and also how much these team owners are walking away with when they're literally not doing anything. Um, you know, then there's also the college athletes and the mm -hmm. minor league players who really are being exploited uh, because they certainly are making their fair share if they're making anything at all. You know, they're getting their college tuition covered, whatever. Uh, but they're still subject to these same conditions and stipulations of being in the sports industry generally, which, you know, I think maybe we can probably all agree on aren't the aren't the best <laughs> conditions to be working in. And I think there's really a lot we can get into here, but I want to start by talking about these players unions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, the NBA was the first to unionize in 1954 under the National Basketball Players Association. And then a couple, I mean, after that, um, other 
leagues uh, decided to unionize as well. Hussein, mm. do you think that professional athletes need a union? I would hope if I answer that question, no, that the show would tank. Um, but I genuinely <laughs> do think that professional athletes deserve a union, need a union. It's good that they have a union, or in, in most most sports, uh, at least American sports. Um, but I think at its core is sort of what you said. Like, if you look at the amount of money generated from professional sports, college sports, it's enormous. I mean, the NCAA uh, brings in upwards of a billion dollars in revenue, even in the month of March, March Madness, when like right. all the top college D1 basketball teams play each other. The amount of money that's brought in uh, in that period is is the majority of the NCAA's revenue across the entire year. I mean, Crazy. you look at any NBA team, NFL team, the owners are billionaires. Mm -hmm. They're making, teams are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Now, of course, due to the struggle of players and formation of unions, in some of those leagues there's profit sharing where they have a fairer share of the pie, but still owners who really just sit on the sidelines make an enormous amount Mad of money. money. So much money. And, you know, I think in some, in like in, bat, in the NBA, the average salary, I was just looking it up before, this was like $7 million a year. Um, the average uh, career span of an NBA player is four years, though. Um, for the NFL, the average median salary is like 800000 The average career is just over three years. But then you think about life after sports, particularly for the NFL, enormous injuries, healthcare they only have for five years, and you have all these players with brain injuries and right. um, and <clears throat> leg injury, like their entire body is deteriorated and paying you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on healthcare. Right. So I think, but at its core, like you said, it's just. An extremely unequal setup, uh, and right. that doesn't even get to the point of college sports. Wait, you're saying that the average NFL salary is eight hundred thousand dollars? Yeah, something like eight hundred seventy-six. That's crazy because don't they spend like twenty million dollars just to do like the? Maybe I'm bugging, but don't they spend like twenty million dollars just to do the halftime performance in the Super Bowl? Yeah, I. I it's an enormous amount of money. That's an enormous crazy. amount of money. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, obviously I'm not making a million dollars or anywhere near that. But at the end of the day, if other workers have rights in their job, doesn't I mean, what is my opinion? You know, it's yeah. like I think people tend to get into that cycle of like, oh, they don't need it, whatever. It's like, well, what does it matter? They're fighting for what they know, the conditions, what they know in their workplace, right? Um, and I support that. Um, I wanted to get a little bit into the history of sports unions mm -hmm. and kind of how they came to be. Um, obviously, as you were talking about, you know, players are driving the profits, right? Like if there was no players, there would be no team, and there would be no game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there would be no tickets to sell. There would be no stadiums to sell out and, you know, 
trick out and, you know, make you make people spend mad money on merchandise and all of that. <clears throat> so it's really the players who are making everything run. And they're working for these teams and owners who are who are walking away with everything, right? I mean, mostly everything. Um, and, you know, historically, it's, it's interesting that when professional sports first developed in the U.S., the athletes were treated more like property mm-hmm. um, of the team owners than they were highly skilled in peak performing workers, like, right. on these teams, right. you know? Like, it was literally, like, slavery. I mean... I don't want I mean I don't want to get that cuz they was making money but being treated like property is nothing is something that no human being should have to undergo in any condition, right? And you know, if because they were treated like property, if they were to get injured on the job or like injured, you know, playing in a game, it's so much easier to just discard them to say, "All right, well, you can't play. Sorry, you're off the team." Yeah. And so these players essentially had no security for what was what would be the end of a really short career, as you were saying, like the average is like four years in, in the NBA. And so players essentially needed to organize to ensure that they didn't have to work a second job um, and make sure that they could pay for health care and to manage their in- injuries because we know the injuries are going to happen in, in professional sports, right? Like it's just going to happen. <clears throat> and so... In response to that reality, like a, a difficult reality that these people who were really just like in the starlight were experiencing was, you know, these players associ- associations began to form in response, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, you know, in the in the 1930s and 40s, as we were talking about with Roger earlier, um, just unionization and was was growing in general. And so there was a general strength, like an increasing strength of workers coming together and building, you know, power on the job. And so what happened? In 1954, the National uh, Basketball Players Association was formed. And then, you know, after that other, I mean, some closer, some sooner after that, some a little bit farther away, uh, you know, also formed in other leagues. And I think it's important to know, and this is what I want to want to ask you about, Hussein. Sorry, I'm just kind of rambling no, right no, now. No, no, please. Well, get me on, <laughs> I'm on the soapbox. Um, but what's interesting to note is that these unionization drives face so many years and even decades, right, of the league's trying to union bust them, you know, to prevent players from forming unions, firing players, blacklisting players um, to prevent them from really just like coming together and being like, all right, as MLK said, we're coming to get our check. Right. And so we had all this like, yeah, we had these owners saying, uh, no, we don't we don't want y'all to unionize. And I think that's just that's super interesting considering the the context in general. I mean, sports is like a multi-billion dollar industry, right? Like, why is it that these owners were so against players coming together to unionize just so they can have like a basic sense of security in a in a field that's so volatile? Yeah. I mean, I think it the enormous power they have when 
they're organized can't be understated. Like you right. said, there's such talk about a specialized workforce. Mm-hmm. There's so few people who can do the type of job a professional athlete can do. There are hundreds of thousands of high school basketball players. Right. A small fraction of those people go into the NCAA, whether it's D1, D2, D3, and play professional basketball. And then amongst NCAA basketball players, only 1.2% actually enter professional basketball in the NBA. Mm -mm. And so they spend their entire lives. This is the other thing about the salary. It's like you spend your entire life training, like, to be a professional player, every uh, you you play on your you know middle school. If you have a middle school sports team, you do uh, clubs. You mm-hmm. after school, you, know, you do do your homework at midnight. Like every anything you can right. do to to make sure um, you can keep your ac- academics on lock. But all your free time is is spent training, right. uh, whatever league it's in. And then I saw this statistic. Um, there was this poll done amongst NCAA players, and 75% felt that they would make it, uh, they would go pro. We got news for you guys. It's unfortunate, <laughs> but it ends up being closer right. to 1% of right. people who actually end up going pro. And so, and then those 1% of people, they have an average career of four years right. in, in the NBA, three years in, in the NFL. But they're like the, on the other hand, as far as, Unions. It's the same reason that any, I think, to me, it's the same reason that any company or any executive wouldn't want their workers to be union. It's the players, as any other group of workers, would be, uh, they're stronger together. Um, And like you mentioned, a 22-minute strike of NBA players uh, against the, in the All-Star game, the lead-up to the All-Star game, uh, led to the NBA commissioner at the time conceding to union recognition and all the demands of the the Players Association. So you can't replace that type of labor. Um, Not that we should promote the idea that if auto workers go on strike that you can easily replace, but it's highly specialized uh, work. Um, But it also speaks to the fact that there's a mythology, I think, in, in professional sports of like, these people all have it great that I think it's you're, you sort of cut through. Right. But then no one talks about all the people who spent their entire lives training for it mm-hmm. to never make it, mm-hmm. who, didn't, who, who still contributed to billions of dollars of revenue right. in, in college, didn't see a penny from it, to not make it to the pros or to last a year or two years in, in a professional league or in the minors where in the in the G League and the NBA, they make like $40,000 a year. That's crazy. And then what do you do after your career? You right. have all these injuries. You 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 uh, spent all your time focusing on on building a career in it. Then what? Right. Like it, you're the people who go into sports commentary and, and become an announcer and analyst. Like these are people who reach a certain level of prestige and right. – in the in the game and so it's such a small percentage of people right it's like these these players especially well it's focusing on college basketball now yeah these players are as you said are working their ass off mm-hmm. like i saw this stat that they 
the fair market value for the labor they're contributing to these university teams and college teams is like about $300,000. They should be making about $300,000 a year. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, you know what they're making, Hussein? They're making college tuition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're getting their college tuition paid off, which is what, like, I mean, depending where you're at, the average is what, like 20, that's like a $25,000 cost. So they're making what, like, I mean, and they're not even making that either. Yeah. Um, it's It's just they're getting their education covered. And so that's like 10% of what even the fair market value should be. But like you said, a vast majority of these athletes think that they're going to, it's all of it's going to pay off that all these sacrifices and struggles that they're going through are going to pay off and they're going to go to the the major leagues. You know, they're going to be a professional athlete in the NBA, whatever it might be. But the reality is, Sorry, you're probably not. And so you're getting stuck with all these injuries. You're getting so much disrespect. You're experiencing straight up, honestly, racism. Like when it comes to having to be and navigate these teams and these sports industry dynamics, all because you think it's going to be worth it. And you're sold this dream that it's going to be worth it. Um, And and. What do they have to show for it? I mean, I think that's that analogy is so true for life and society under capitalism in general, because we're always told this narrative of like, you just got to work hard. You just got to mm-hmm. put your head down and go to work and bring home your paycheck. And one day, one day your boss might notice you and give you a promotion. Or one day, if you just work hard enough, you too can be a millionaire or you can be the leader of whatever the hell you want to be a leader of. Um, in terms of the corporate world. And how how is that true if we're all sold the same dream? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like we know that the, the reality is that most of us aren't going to see a million dollar salary in our lives because the, yeah. the corporate heads, the corporate moguls, they don't they don't want to give us our fair share as working class people. And so. It's, of course, these these. Professional athletes, specifically like in the NBA, NFL, whatever, are making millions of dollars. But that's chump change compared to what these owners are actually walking away with, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think this point around being sold a reality that just is largely unreachable, to be honest, like statistically. I, I don't know a lot about this, but I'd be really curious to dig into it maybe after the show. But like the a- AAU basketball teams, like people mm. who are in their teens or even younger and before like people play during the summer or in parallel. I don't know the exact structure of AAU, but um, while they're also playing high school basketball, they play AAU. It's basically mm-hmm. a competitive um, amateur I think yeah. it's called the amateur No, I used to play basketball, team. but I couldn't do AAU because that joint was too expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's too, it's expensive, but it's it's also, it's like, and it's really competitive, I think, in yeah. certain areas. And so, but I just wonder, because there are all these recruiters that go mm-hmm. to AAU uh, practices and, and games and probably invest a lot of money to ensure there's, if we think about it as a budding group of workers that they Mm -hmm. can hire, invest a lot of money in ensuring that it's a competitive labor pool Mm. of like, okay, we got to make sure, even though we know that 99% of these people aren't going to make it, that they're all competing against each other to build out the, the best players so that they're available for college basketball. And then, and then 
the NBA. If, and then, you know, we don't mind if 99% of them are, mm-hmm. are sort of disposed with. But the 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 structure of it is 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 nuts and the point around um owner salaries and the amount of money that team like the athletic departments and and the NCAA as a whole um make in revenue it compared to the fact that college athletes only get their tuition covered mm-hmm. and if they're not I think you can be a walk-on and you don't even get your tuition covered so you can be on the team but you're a walk-on you don't get your tuition covered but you may still be contributing to the team so the in 2020 the rule around profiting off of a player's name image likeness nil mm-hmm. for short was changed such that players can actually profit off of their image previously it was just they're barred from it so like that's crazy. <laughs> Their name and image and all this stuff. You're selling that, your face on a yeah, t-shirt. Exactly. And, and you're, you're not allowed nothing. to make any I mean Cam Newton at oh. Auburn was uh faced like a suspension because of this because he sold uh a he like sold some memorabilia he mm. won wow. to make some money. And all these people I mean like the vast majority of people who enter high school sports or or like college, especially the NBA and the NFL, right. like working class people. Right. And so the other thing is, like, people enter it with the 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 idea, largely, like, if you listen to any interview post-draft of an NBA player, NFL player, they're like, I'm, like, buying, I'm like buying my mom a car. Right. You know? It's like, I'm I'm taking care of my family. Right. <laughs> like, that's what it's about. It's it's not all luxury. It's mm-hmm. just, like, I, I'm, I see this as an opportunity to uplift my entire community, my family. Right. Um, and so the, all those players who don't make it to – to the pros, they could actually be making bank mm-hmm. four years playing college uh, college sports mm-hmm. in a billion-dollar industry. Right. But they're not. Not right now, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think that these players... Honestly, if we have any college ball players listening to this podcast right now, I have some words of wisdom to share. Y'all deserve dignity and respect in the on the court, in the locker room, everywhere that you are at, right? Because you are giving these universities, these institutions, all this money, and you're not getting anything for it. I mean, you're not getting nearly enough uh, for it. And <clears throat> I think increasingly, it's interesting to see um, these professional and also not yet professional athletes. Um, Taking more political stances, too, um, and connecting, you know, whether it's things on the court or just in their lives to what's happening in the broader society um, is is awesome. I mean, obviously, we saw Colin Kaepernick taking the knee during the anthem. Uh, That was connected to what was happening in society Mm -hmm. writ large. Right. And I think we're increasingly seeing players confront some of these injustices that they're experiencing in in their workplace, um, namely racism a lot of the times, right? Like, I saw this stat that 71% of the NBA in 2023 was black. 71%. You know how many owners in the NBA are black? Take a guess. It's zero. <laughs> It's zero. It's zero. <laughs> There's zero black owners in the NBA. Meanwhile, almost three quarters of the workforce is black. 
And I mean, we already know, we can already see the the dynamic, the relationship that's playing out here, right? I mean, the whole system of sports is really premised on this racist system of exploitation with mostly white owners and investors and whatever people who who get who can get rich off of off of the you know whatever it is the the sport in this case um with the predominantly black workforce and you know you can look at any of these coaches you can look at any of their pictures and be like man this guy was probably a descendant of a slave owner right (laughs) like (laughs) they just look (laughs) racist you know you know they're slinging around all the racial slurs i'm sure that some of these players have actually endured it too right like if they're not working hard enough if they made a mistake i'm sure i'm a hundred percent sure that they are getting it they're the coaches are in the and the owners they're coming for them if they're not doing exactly what they need to do and you know where else that happens in the factories in mm-hmm. the plants in our work in our general workplaces that maybe isn't a court or a field or whatever but if we're not doing what we need to get done the boss is going to do whatever they want to do to us because you know they just think that they can yeah um and that's exactly why they need a union. They need yeah. some protections and ability to, whether it's investigate, whether it's to take action, whether it's just to negotiate with like an actual solid foundation to do so for stronger rights and, and dignity and respect in, in the workplace. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, just speaking to the the part around negotiations, because I think it's worth just mentioning concretely, like what, just think about sports player contracts because they've dramatically changed even in the last 10 years in the last like couple nfl contracts uh, or uh collective bargaining agreements like you're increasingly seeing players and in basketball too um the amount of money that uh can be paid to players is increasing in Mm -hmm. relation to um revenue um so like revenue sharing but also the amount of guaranteed money and like stipulations in the contracts are becoming more favorable. They're still really kind of messed up. I mean, right. it's a reflection of the entire system of right. our our workers guaranteed what they really deserve. Yeah, not really, but um, increasingly you have the most premier players who set the standard mm. for their entire um, uh, position group in whatever sports you you plan like for the NFL of quarterbacks like the amount of guaranteed money money in a contract is the ratio of guaranteed money compared to the whole package in the contract is becoming higher and higher mm-hmm. um and so now like the likelihood of a quarterback signing a contract that's not nearly or fully guaranteed is pretty low uh and that it has a ripple effect for all players then mm-hmm. um that comes through bargaining and, you know, if, if they're not going to give players what they want and something that's unifying, like everyone, like, especially in a in a sport where you could like you could uh, pivot on the field and then tear your ACL and right. then your career is over. Right. Like it's over. You train you spent 20 years just training mm-hmm. for this sport. You make one bad cut because the field is in shit condition. No, you tear facts. your ACL, your, your career is over. And like they they may have made like already 30 million dollars off of you because you're a premier player Mm -hmm. and selling tickets and endorsements and all this stuff 
like just the phenomenon of Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, <laughs> like not just I think because it's kind of like a it's like a casino in a sense, like anything mm. that brings more attention and viewership. Right. The NFL and all the media companies are making enormous amount of money. Like the NFL actually got some heat for like always focusing on Taylor Swift. And then they put out a message to fans be like, no, we're actually going to do this because it, it brings more fans, which really at the end wow. of the day, it brings more money to them. Right. Um, but previously, b- before unions, like you have contracts that aren't guaranteed. You sign a 10 year contract at like it seems like a lot, 10 million dollars. Mm-hmm. But you first game out, you break something and you can you're cut. Right. So that there's what's the what's the security in that? Mm-hmm. That's not a, that's not really a career then. Right. You know, it's you're, you're kind of gambling on something and and uh, people at the top are, you know, they're, they're just like chess pe- people are chess. The players 100%. are chess pieces. A hundred percent. So in summary, we have these professional athletes, you know, in the NBA, the NFL, who are facing extremely brutal conditions on the court and on the field, you know, really experiencing these the potential for devastating health and safety uh, issues that mm-hmm. can really alter the future of their life forever and, and leave them with nothing. Yeah. Um, and on top of all of these risks, really, that, that professional athletes are taking, they're making a fraction of of what the owners are making. And the owners, I remind you, don't do anything. <laughs> they're, not, they're not doing anything but owning. Uh, it's the players who are actually, uh, you know, making the teams run and, and, and creating a, an empire, so to speak, uh, for the owners to profit off of. And so with that basic math in mind, it is so important, right, that professional athletes do have unions and, and we're seeing... Uh, the existence of them having been a huge uh, improvement to the conditions and to, you know, them being able to fight and collectively bargain on the job uh, than, you know, from when before they didn't have uh, unions. Yeah. In 2024, looking forward, you know, definitely want to continue to see these players unions, you know, come together and fight for better conditions, whatever it is that they're fighting for. But I also really want to see these players understand themselves as political actors too, right? Like, yes, they're celebrities. Yes, they make a lot of money, but that's exactly why they need to see themselves as political actors, right? Like the spotlight is on them and there is a chance for them to connect, you know, what's happening on the court or the field to what's happening in society at large, Mm -hmm. you know? And also, I really hope that these college athletes can can get these unions together, right? And they can become the next force of of workers who are able to, you know, collectively bargain for more dignity, more respect, and honestly, fair pay <laughs> yeah. on the job. So that's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of On The Line. Make sure you like, share, and follow us at Labor On The Line on all streaming and social media platforms. As always, whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you'll always find us on the line.